my wife, Polly, and I uh, shouldn't have gotten married. At least not when we did and why we did. We were both young, stupid, we were immature. She got married for the security, I got married for the sex. Neither of us had any idea what we were doing, nor did we appreciate God's purpose for marriage supposed to be to glorify him and marriage was just one shouldn't in a long list of shouldn'ts in my life that in many ways tell the story of my life my parents they probably shouldn't have gotten married in retrospect had kids my dad shouldn't have left our family they shouldn't have gotten divorced I shouldn't have hardened my heart against God hated him for many years I shouldn't have idolized success, sports. Instead, I shouldn't have emotionally abused my high school girlfriend. I shouldn't have pretended to be a Christian in college to get friends. I shouldn't have been offered a job in youth ministry. I shouldn't have been fired from that job. I shouldn't have lied and hid from my wife for so many years. You shouldn't have let me start preaching here six years ago, no experience, no education. Go back and listen to my sermons now. It's terrible. My life has been filled with shouldn'ts. And yet I can stand here before you this morning healed, restored, forgiven, accepted, loved, because I serve a God of neverthelesses. I shouldn't have sinned, strayed, made that decision, pursued that girl, that career, watched that, said that, thought that, done that. Nevertheless, God. Perhaps you're here today realizing that your life, too, has been littered with shouldn'ts. And my hope this morning is to encourage you through Genesis chapter 50, the gospel that we find there, the good news that there really is a God of neverthelesses. And if you know him, his son Jesus, you can rest today in the knowledge that you do not possess the power to ruin what God has declared redeemed. That's what we're talking about this morning, redemption. The hope of redemption. Redemption can be understood in a few different ways biblically, but the definition that we're going to be primarily concerned with this morning is simply this, to bring good out of evil. To take something bad and to transform it and to use it instead for something good. We have all heard the saying, when life gives you lemons, what do you do? You make lemonade, right? Well, it turns out most of us are very bad at making lemonade. But God, our God, is the ultimate lemonade maker. God can take those six-month-old lemons that you bought and shoved in the back of the produce drawer and forgot about. You discover later it looks like a science experiment gone very wrong, black and moldy. God can take those lemons and he can turn them into the most delicious lemonade you have ever tasted because our God is sovereign and God is supernatural. 
He has all the power, and his power is beyond anything that this world has to offer or even understands. And we have seen God's redemptive power on full display now for 49 chapters of the book of Genesis. I think it would be a fair summary of Genesis to call it a book of shouldn'ts that God redeemed because of his neverthelesses. And that is nowhere more evident than in the life of the patriarch Joseph. We've been following Joseph's life in particular for some 12 chapters now since we were first introduced to him back in chapter 37. Joseph's story constitutes a full one-fourth of the book of Genesis. Consider that, okay? God spent 31 verses describing how he created the entire universe and now he spent 419 verses telling us Joseph's story. Why? Why? I think in keeping with our theme for this morning, one of the reasons has to be that God is emphasizing for us just how impressive and how important his power of redemption really is. Creating a whole universe out of nothing is one thing. But listen, fixing broken sinners like you and me like Jacob and Joseph and his lousy brothers, that takes some work. But God is faithful to do it. He is faithful to redeem. And he's proven that time and time again for 49 chapters now. And I pray he's proven that time and time again in your life as well. So I want to do three things with you together this morning. First, I want to remind us of God's redemption all throughout Genesis up until this point, we're going to do a little recap in our final week. Second, I want to finish Joseph's story with you as we zoom in on chapter 50 and the end in particular. How has God worked redemption in and through his story? And finally, I want us to turn and consider our own lives too as we make this personal. How have I seen God's power of redemption at work in my own life? to bring good out of evil. That's where we're headed. So would you stand with me again as you're able, out of respect for the reading of God's word. We're going to read Genesis chapter 50. We're going to start in verse 15, and I'll read it for us all the way through the end. Did you hear the word of the Lord this morning? When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. 
And so Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning again for your word. We thank you for the message it brings us once again this morning and every Sunday morning. The message of hope, the hope of redemption. Father, we thank you that we serve you, a God of neverthelesses, and that your nevertheless is bigger, more strong and powerful than our shouldn'ts. God, we thank you that you prove that most powerfully and personally for us in the work of Jesus on the cross for our sake. God, if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know him, I pray that you would help them see Jesus through Genesis chapter 50. We need to see your gospel on every page of Scripture. It's not hard this morning. Such a beautiful passage of redemption points us ahead to Jesus. Help us to see him. Make much of Jesus this morning. For his glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seated. <clears throat> In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God saw that everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good for two chapters. And then we humans decided at the prompting of Satan, the serpent, that we should make, we would make better gods for ourselves than Yahweh. And so we broke God's one rule. We ate of the forbidden fruit world's first shouldn't. Nevertheless, God redeemed. He redeemed Adam and Eve's lives by providing the world's first animal sacrifice, chapter 3, in their place to die the death that they deserved. Moreover, God promised to raise up an offspring from the woman who would one day crush the head of the serpent. But it becomes quickly clear chapter 4, that Eve's direct descendants will not fulfill that promise. Her righteous son Abel is killed by his own brother Cain, the world's worst interpersonal shouldn't. Thou shalt not murder. Nevertheless, God redeemed. Not only ransomed Cain's life, but he raised up for Eve another child, Seth, and it was through his line that we hear at the end of chapter 4, people began to call upon the name of the Lord for another two chapters. But by chapter 6, you remember the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, really, really bad. 
The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man. And he did. God rightfully and mercifully did in the flood. Nevertheless, God redeemed. And Noah found favor, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so God blessed Noah and his sons. But then Noah did what he shouldn't. Remember, he got drunk in chapter 9. His son Ham did what he shouldn't, and he uncovered his father's nakedness. And for it, Ham's son, Canaan, gets cursed. And then two chapters later, Canaan's cursed nephew, Nimrod, leads another worldwide insurrection against God's rule by attempting to build a tower of Babel, a tower that would reach up all the way into the heavens to replace God with themselves. Nevertheless, God redeemed. God graciously came down. He confused their language and he dispersed them over the face of all the earth, chapter 11. And for some four centuries after that, uh, God would eventually graciously choose one man this time. Noah. Sorry, we already did Noah. Abram. Quizzing you. Abram. Chapter 12. God chooses Abram with whom to make a covenant to make Abram into a great nation, a people after God's own possession, to give them a land, the promised land, Canaan, and through that people to ultimately bless all people, all families of the earth. And Abram's life, as much as anyone, Abram's life was filled with shouldn'ts and neverthelesses. Abram shouldn't have faithlessly left the promised land just seven verses after God brought him there. Nevertheless, God redemptively used his sojourning in Egypt to prosper him and make him rich. Abram shouldn't have doubted God's promises. Nevertheless, God redemptively confirmed his covenant to Abram again in chapter 15. Abram shouldn't have taken matters into his own hands in chapter 16, slept with Sarai's servant Hagar. Nevertheless, God redemptively gave him Ishmael, another son. Abram shouldn't have laughed in God's face when God told him, promised him, he would give Sarai a son in her old age. Nevertheless, God redemptively offered Abram a new name, Abraham, the sign of circumcision, and a son, a new son, Isaac. Abraham shouldn't have lied to Abimelech in chapter 20. Nevertheless, God redemptively used it to secure even more land for him in Canaan. And after 10 chapters, basically, of Abraham shouldn't after shouldn't, doing what he shouldn't, getting it wrong, Abraham finally gets it right. In chapter 22, you remember, climax in the middle of the book of Genesis, when God called him to sacrifice his son Isaac. As a test of faith, Abraham passed that test, and his faith was credited to him is righteousness. Abraham's not in heaven today because he was such a good guy. A lot of shouldn'ts in his life. His faith was credited to him as righteousness. And by faith, he he bought even more land in Canaan in which to bury his wife Sarah. By faith, he sent his servant out to find a wife for his son Isaac. By faith, Isaac then prayed for his wife, Rebekah, for she was barren in chapter 25 and God granted that prayer and gave Rebecca twin boys in her womb Esau and Jacob in the next 10 chapters after that chapters 27 through 36 you remember 
trace follow the shouldn'ts and never the lesses of the life of Jacob. Third patriarch, Jacob. Jacob shouldn't have tricked his brother Esau out of his birthright. He shouldn't have tricked his father Isaac out of his blessing. Nevertheless, God redemptively blessed Jacob, confirmed his covenant oath to Jacob. Uncle Laban shouldn't have tricked Jacob into marrying Leah instead of Rachel. Jacob shouldn't have agreed to do it and to take not just that, but before wives for himself. Nevertheless, God redemptively used those marriages to give Jacob 12 sons, the future 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob shouldn't have peeled pagan fertility sticks, doubted God's promise to him. Nevertheless, God redemptively increased his livestock anyway. Jacob shouldn't have feared Laban in chapter 31, feared Esau in chapter 32. Nevertheless, God redemptively appeared to him again, comforted him, wrestled with him, shook him up, blessed him, and gave him a new name and a future Israel. Israel shouldn't have lied to his brother Esau. Nevertheless, God redemptively brought him back into the promised land. Israel shouldn't have let his daughter Dinah fall in with the wrong crowd, the Canaanites, and get raped. He shouldn't have let his sons, Simeon and Levi, avenge her honor by slaughtering the entire village. Nevertheless, God redemptively used it to increase his people's territory in Canaan. Israel shouldn't have played favorites with his sons and pitted them against one another. Nevertheless, God redemptively blessed Israel's favorite son, chosen one, Joseph. And it's with him that we pick up our second main point for this morning, the story of Joseph, God's redemption in Joseph's life in chapters 37 through 50. Now, to do that, I want to fast forward back ahead in time, some 50 years from chapter 37, and we're going to pick the story back up where we left off last week at the end of chapter 49. Israel has blessed his two grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, in chapter 48. He has now blessed his 12 sons in chapter 49. And then he pulled up his feet in the bed, he breathed his last, and he was gathered to his people. Jacob died. And we're going to skip the opening of chapter 50, verses 1 through 14. Jacob's funeral, the summary is, Jacob dies, Joseph weeps for his father, he has Jacob's body embalmed by the Egyptians, he gets permission from Pharaoh to return to Canaan with his brothers to bury dad's body there alongside Abraham and Isaac, and everyone cries a lot more. And we pick back up in verse 15 where we began our reading for this morning, and the scene has now shifted from this touching moment of family unity as the 12 brothers bury their beloved father together to a scene of panic. We read already when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and will pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. What evil? Go back in time with me again, 50 years now, Pick back up in chapter 37. It's like a really complicated, compelling movie where we're going back and forth in time just to make sure you're paying attention. We're back 50 years ago, chapter 37, when his brothers saw that their father loved Joseph more than all his brothers, they hated him, and they conspired against him to kill him. But looking up, 
they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites on their way down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it to us if we kill our brother? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. So they sold him for 20 shekels of silver, you remember, and they took Joseph to Egypt. That's pretty bad. But you remember, Joseph's story gets even worse. Chapters 39 through 49. Your own brothers selling you into slavery in a foreign land, that would be bad enough. No one should have to go through that. See, Joseph's life, like his father Jacob's, and Isaac's, and Abraham's, his life was filled with shouldn'ts as well, but unlike his forefathers, Joseph's shouldn'ts were primarily not a consequence of his own sin, but rather of other sins against him. Maybe that's you this morning. Reality is all of our stories are filled with both, aren't they? None of us is without sin. We've all been sinned against plenty. But Joseph's shouldn'ts were primarily other sins against him. His brothers shouldn't have sold him into slavery. The Midianites shouldn't have sold him to Potiphar. Human trafficking, it's bad. Potiphar's wife shouldn't have sexually assaulted him and then falsely accused Joseph. Potiphar shouldn't have unjustly thrown him in prison, believed his wicked wife. Pharaoh's cupbearer shouldn't have forgotten Joseph and his dream after he was released from prison, leaving poor Joseph to rot there for another two years. His life was filled with shouldn'ts. But nevertheless, God redeemed and blessed Joseph. And in chapter 41, when Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream and pleased Pharaoh, Joseph was not only freed from prison, but he was exalted. He was elevated to the position of vice Pharaoh, number two in command in all of Egypt, the most powerful, affluent nation in all the world. And it is for that reason, Joseph's position and his power, that now, fast forward, his brothers fear him back in chapter 50. They know that Joseph has the power to enact justice, to pay them back for their evil of having sold him into slavery 40 years ago. And they figure that the only reason he hasn't done so already is out of love and respect for their father. That's why Joseph pretended to forgive them. That's why he relocated them all to Goshen, the best land in Egypt. That's why he's been so nice and given them provisions and taken care of them. These last 17 years in Egypt, surely it was all just because of Jacob. But now that Jacob is dead, Joseph's brothers figure they will be too soon enough. And so what do they do? Verse 16, so they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. They lie. They lie. They make up a story that Jacob's final dying wish was that Joseph would forgive them. Joseph knows it's a lie. Joseph was with his father on his deathbed. He knows dad's dying wish was to be buried back in Canaan. Moreover, Joseph 
has already forgiven his brothers. That was all of chapters 42 through 45. We won't recap it. Already spent two sermons on it. The power of forgiveness. Joseph has already extended them grace, more grace, lavish, ridiculous, extravagant grace. So that when his brothers here doubt his grace, when they distrust his forgiveness in chapter 50, Joseph responds the way any of us would in verse 17, with profound sadness. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And and remember, the they there is not the brothers. They sent messengers. That's how much their guilt had weighed them down. Their fear and shame had weighed them down. They were too afraid to even approach Joseph. Eventually, in verse 18, they will muster up the courage. We hear his brothers also came They fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 15? Right before they left the upper room and they all went out and betrayed him. Judas betrayed him most grievously, of course. Peter denied him three times. All his closest followers would, would flee in fear from the foot of the cross. But do you remember what Jesus said to them, knowing all of it, all that was to come? Do you remember what he said, nevertheless? He said, no longer do I call you servants, but I have called you, what? Friends. Friends, brothers. Joseph's brothers here, like the prodigal son, When the prodigal son returned back home, you remember, he was content to be a servant. Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me like one of your hired servants. Joseph, we're no longer worthy to be called your brothers. Just make us like one of your servants. We'll we'll be your servants. We're we're content content to spend the rest of our lives working trying to atone for all of the evils of our past. But friends, Joseph says, and Jesus says to you this morning, you cannot make it up to me. If you could, it wouldn't be called grace. It wouldn't be called an undeserved gift. You don't earn a gift. This is a debt that you cannot repay, he says. It's freely given. Verse 19, that Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Now keep in mind, every other character in the story for 49 and a half chapters has tried to be, has wanted to be in the place of God. Adam and Eve wanted to be God so that they could make the rules. Cain wanted to be God so that he could decide who got to live and who he wanted to put to death. Lamech, Noah, Nimrod, Abraham, Lot, Sarah, Isaac, Laban, Jacob, Rachel, Leah, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Pharaoh, all of them, they wanted to be in the place of God. You and me. Every time we sin, it's essentially what we're doing, isn't it? God, I know better. 
God, I want my way, not yours. I want to be in the place of God. Then there's Joseph, the Christ figure. Remember, Joseph was a man. He was a historical man, and he was imperfect. But he's also a type. It's what we call in biblical studies a typology. He's a prefigurative symbol of the Messiah that was to come. Jesus claimed that all of the scriptures, the Old Testament, points us ahead to him, but perhaps none of the scriptures, no character, does so as directly as the character of Joseph in the book of Genesis. I I just want us to appreciate this morning as we wrap up Joseph's story, Genesis, all of the parallels the analogy, the prefiguring here. The most beloved son of his father, a shepherd of his father's sheep, hated by his brothers, stripped of his robe, beaten and rejected, sold for the price of a common slave, falsely accused and bound in chains, placed with two other prisoners, one of whom was saved and the other was lost. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. This is 2,000 years before Christ. Unbelievable prophetic parallels, prefiguring, foreshadowing, exalted after their suffering, forgave those who wronged them, rescued their nation, and most significantly for this morning, redemption. For both Joseph and for Jesus, what others meant against them for evil, God turned it to good. That's the climax of Joseph's story here. It's the climax of the entire book of Genesis. Chapter 50, verse 20. Best verse in Genesis. Best verse probably on redemption in all of Scripture. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive. God redeemed Joseph's brother's evil and he used it to rescue his people. And not only his people, but many people, save many nations from famine and physical death. Again, that's a prefiguring. Jesus didn't just save Israel, his people, God's people. Every tribe, tongue, people. It's a picture, it's a shadow, it's a glimpse of this greater redemption that God would accomplish through Jesus. When God would take the greatest evil in the history of the world, God's own son, suffering, dying on the cross, and he would use that as the very means by which he would accomplish the greatest good in all of history, forgiving our sins, rescuing us, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive, this time not just physically, not just from starvation, but spiritually alive, eternally alive, instead of suffering the just consequences of our sin. Eternity, separated from God in hell, we can now live in heaven with Jesus forever. Friends, that is redemption. That is the greatest story of redemption that's ever been told. And here's the best part. It's true. Every other story, every movie you watch, every, every compelling story, it's all just 
a, a, a repackaging, fictional repackaging of the greatest redemption story that's true. This is not Hollywood. It's not inspired by true events. It's not based on a true story. It's true. The gospel is true. The good news that God sent his son Jesus to die in your place and then he redeemed Christ's death by raising him from the dead to defeat sin and hell and death for you so that you too might have Christ's resurrection power flowing through your veins by virtue of the Holy Spirit, your seal and your hope of the eternal life that now awaits you in heaven with Jesus. That redemption story is 100% true. And it can be your story this morning if you will but repent and trust in Jesus for your salvation, for your redemption. You can be saved. Listen, I don't know your story. I don't know what you're bringing in this morning. This is point number three in closing. I want to ask you, do you have, make it personal, do you have the hope of redemption this morning? I shared my story in the introduction. Again, I don't know your story. I don't know all of the shouldn'ts in your life. Maybe like mine, maybe like Jacob's, Abraham's, maybe most of your shouldn'ts were of your own making. You did it to yourself. You shouldn't have the current job you have because you lied on your resume, your interview. You shouldn't still be married after what you did to your spouse. You shouldn't have turned to alcohol, drugs, porn, money, work, as coping mechanisms to deal with your pain, your hurt. Now you're an addict. You shouldn't have stayed up late last night doing whatever you were doing. I don't know. I don't know what you're bringing in this morning. Maybe like Joseph, your life has been full of shouldn'ts that were totally outside of your control. You shouldn't have been abused as a child shouldn't have been abandoned by your spouse. You shouldn't have had to bury your own child. No parent should have to do that. Some of you shouldn't be alive today. We've got some walking medical miracles at this church. Brian Gaither technically died a couple times a few years ago. Right? Brian West, I saw him this morning, balcony. Brian West was given a year to live, what, a decade ago? Some of you shouldn't be alive. Maybe some of you feel like you shouldn't have even been born. You want to talk about redemption. I get to explain to my son one day that he was the product of a sinful, extramarital, one-night stand relationship that never should have happened. Nevertheless, God. Right? My son, sure as heck, better believe in a God of redemption. Otherwise, his entire life is just one big mistake, an accident. But friends, here's the good news. God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't make mistakes. He works all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1. He's sovereign. And here's his will. Here is his promise to you. This morning, if you are in Christ, God works all things together for good. You know the verse well. You love it, Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according 
to his purpose. He's sovereign and he's good. All things. Not some things. Not most things. Not good things. All things. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe it? Can you believe it? Is it a promise to you? It's not for everyone. That promise is specifically for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Is that you? Is that you this morning? Is it a promise for you? What's your story? I want to end things a little differently this morning. I saved a couple extra minutes at the end. I want to give you some time this morning. Rather than me standing up here and continuing to guess your story and all the shouldn'ts of your life and how God has redeemed them, nevertheless God, I want to give you an opportunity, a few extra minutes at the end, to respond to God's hand of faithfulness in your life, in your story, over all these many years now, with praise and worship, to reflect back. Most of us don't spend nearly enough time you know, we get caught up in the day-to-day and the, the present. That's good to live in the present. It's also good from time to time to pause, step back, and look back and remember God's hand of faithfulness to bring us to where he's got us today, to see how he's, and appreciate and celebrate worship how he has worked redemption into all the nooks and crannies of our life. Joseph was able to let go of the evils of his past because he trusted that the one who sovereignly ordained them was working all things together for his good. Maybe that's hard for you this morning. Again, I I don't know what you're bringing in, what present struggles and griefs that you might be bringing in this morning going through, but here's what I do know. I know that God has already proved once and for all on the cross that he can take even the most horrible, unimaginable evils that this world can throw at us and he can transform them and he can bring the most amazing, wonderful good out of them. He can do it and he will do it for all those in Christ. In a world full of shouldn'ts, we can praise God for a savior of neverthelesses. Amen. Let's pray.